Bob and Jeremy's Conflap. The Reality Podcast. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Uncle Tim. Good morning, Jez. How are things with you? Very good indeed. It's grey, as uh, you might expect, but I'm hoping they'll hit some tennis balls today. Yes. England, uh, England have lost the toss. Australia have won the toss of the test. So, so England are bowling. And, it, and I think, talking of cricket, we have to win that or it's game over, isn't it? Correct. Those of you who are tuning in who like cricket and tennis, that's what's happening at the moment. I think the women are better at the cricket than the men currently by quite a well, long stretch. Maybe. <laughs> So where are you today? Where am I speaking to you from? I'm at Ollie's house because he's got the setup here and uh, he had a pair of um, headphones which we're not actually using. Well, I can see you and I can hear you clearly. So the way I sort of see this session is you've reached a, an age of 80, which doesn't look possible looking at you across the screen. <laughs> <laughs> it must seem a funny number. I don't think you've aged beyond sort of your 50s to me. And you're still working. So I thought it would be interesting to interview somebody who's had that much experience, but is also still selling and still working in business. And so I thought it'd be quite fun. So I've got some questions and I know you've also prepared some things to talk about. Sure. So we'll dance around a little between those. Okay. So here we go for a sort of big reflective one to kick off. If you think back to when you first started working, and I think, am I right in saying that you went to the same university as John Major? Absolutely. University of Life. Very difficult to get into. <laughs> Very tricky. You got a first, didn't you? Double first. Double first. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's impressive. I've got a hat, which I bought in Disneyland with MU, which stands for Monsters University. So sometimes right. people, when they ask me what unit I said, I went to MU, they go, is that Manchester? <laughs> I, say, <laughs> I say it's Monsters. Monsters University. And you started working, and I'm wondering if you remember back to that, you can have all the sort of enthusiasm of youth, and then you hit a wall and you make a mistake, but you learn something hugely from that. Mm -hmm. Can you think of a, a good early lesson where it only would have been learned by actually not succeeding in a sense? Well, possibly once when I was in advertising, I was probably being a bit too polite to a client. And he said, no, come on, what do you really think, Tim? <laughs> then I told him what I really thought. But sometimes there's no point being patronising and over polite. You just have to actually say what you mean or say what you think. Mm. Was that your first foray? You, it was advertising your first business no, I, I can't really remember, but I do remember I had a wonderful boss who was just fantastic and he said to me, look, I, I want you to do this job and I want you to make instant decisions. Don't dilly-dally. If you make a wrong decision, I will support you. I will help you. But I want you to make instant decisions because that's what this work is all about. And that was very interesting. Yes. Whereas I suppose when we're so young, everyone's making decisions for us and then yeah. you're tasked with making them yourself. Yeah. So is that the early leader that you think of most fondly? Well, I don't know. I mean, he was, this guy was a great boss and he taught me, I went into a marketing company, a part of a large advertising agency. And um, he taught me so much. He, be, he became then a marketing director of Cadbury's, managing director of Colgate Palmolive. So he was a very big, he was a very clever guy, a very good guy. Wow. And those brands still going strong. I don't know if Colgate's part of Palmolive or owned by Procter & Gamble or something now, but 
huge brands. Yes, big brands. If we move forward to the future now, just to give people an, an indication of what you're up to now, you're still selling, but in a different capacity, aren't you? Yes. What is it you're up to? Yes, I work, I handle all the UK contracts and inquiries of a very large Italian engineering company. I met the boss, funnily enough, on the beach in Antigua, as you do. And, um, <laughs> and he, we were all quite merry on New Year's Eve. And he said, um, tell me, Tim, what do you do? And he said, I said, can we have coffee tomorrow morning? So I said, certainly. So he said, look, I've got, I told him what I did. And I was working that point for um, American company handling all their business in Europe. And he said, can you um, work for me? I said, sure, why not? So he said, uh, come over to Milan. So I flew over to Milan and I wrote out my own contract, handed it to him. He said, fine, accept it. So I have been working for him for the, the plastic division, plastic blowing division and oil division, getting contracts. I handled six big contracts in that time. I'm working on four big biomass inquiries now, which I hope well, one or two might might come off. Um, so that's very interesting. And I handle, as I said, all the contracts and inquiries. And I'm, okay, I'm, I'm pretty antique now. They don't know how old I am. They know I'm old, but they know how old. But I'm doing a pretty valuable job for them. And when I depart, I'm not sure who's going to take over. And what is it that makes you still, I mean, because I think you have a deal where you're paid some money to help them in, in one capacity, but you also will make money if you sell, if the sales come in, which is the commissions and things. That's right. I mean, if the business comes in, it's very big business because the contracts are half a million, three quarters of a million, a million euros. So quite substantial. And I'm working on one where we've, we've put up the quote for two million euros. That's a lot of money. Wow. I get paid a retainer for doing a lot of marketing, some marketing work for them. But if I get a, the business, that's big bananas, which is very good. Yeah, fabulous. What is it that makes you... Because I've always known you having energy and, and wanting to, you know, add value and do the proper job. What is it that makes you still go into your wonderful little office and... Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> the saying goes that if you wake up in the, on the Monday morning not knowing what you're going to do, that's a bit depressing. So yeah. I still love the chase. I'm working with really clever, interesting, dynamic people in Italy. They're charming, they're clever. They're, I don't find my work remotely stressful. It's very interesting. So I do love the chase of the business. In fact, when the order comes, it's almost an anticlimax. It's the chase which is challenging. Yeah. And uh, that's what I do, and I like it. Uh, my sons mostly forbid me to stop working. I asked right. my wife two years ago, should I stop working? She said, why? Yeah. So I've got my mind, I've got my health, fortunately. I've got a lovely little office, international headquarters, of course. <laughs> so why not carry on? I'm, okay, if I don't get any of the business I'm working on now, I will probably stop next year when I'm 81. But at the moment, I've got no intention of stopping. I mean, if we think of the different things you've done, this one has quite long lead times. You Quite a lot of patience. Yeah, very long lead time. I mean, if we get any of this business uh, this year, two, 2023, we won't be able to deliver until next spring or summer. Wow. Yeah. Do you mean in, install and actually sort of start? Yes. I, I it takes sort of seven to 12 months to manufacture these machines. They're big machines, twice the size of a transit van sort of thing. Very complicated. A lot of pipes and compressors and engineering work. Very, very high quality. So mm. it takes time. 
And they don't, they don't hold stock. They build to order. They do not hold stock. Wow. Okay. And has the world of all the things that are going on, Ukraine, supply chains, does that affect their raw materials to build? Yes, everything's, all the materials have increased enormously. Yeah. Steel, everything has increased enormously. So, so most of the people understand that and they just have to get on with it. I mean, we have competitors, of course we do. We aren't normally beaten on price. We're not normally beaten on price. And we just have to get on with it and quote our best and, and try and get the business. It's interesting because you also at a time owned and ran a factory in Haddenham, of course, the, where I grew up. And then I know other factories in Wiltshire. What's, what's been one of the big changes you think to actually manufacturing and producing goods? Well, the big change has been communication. I mean, when I first started in business, it was telex. You probably never heard of a telex. Uh, <laughs> and then typing letters and phone calls. That was the only means. But most of the business was done on correspondence letters. So, for instance, in the first big advertising agency I worked for, there was a typing pool of 12 people. Wow. And, and, and they were literally typing letters all, or proposals or marketing plans all day, every day. When I went to my next job, I had my own secretary, which was very nice. And then when I went to Alexander Workman, my father, I also had my own secretary. So those days, typing letters was the main form of communication, if you can believe it. It's funny, isn't it? Because now we have this endless email trail of right. the previous email to the next. Was it a question of filing letters and keeping the same chain? And Oh, wow. It went on and on. Yes, there were lots of big files. But I mean, for instance, nobody, no, nobody did their own typing. You all had a secretary. And wow. Nowadays, of course, even possibly the biggest bosses will have a secretary or a PA shielding him or her from unwanted calls. But everybody now does their own typing, don't they? Yeah, oh, completely. Yep, yep. No, so... That was unheard of all those years ago. Unheard of. No, if I think of my own mother, who was a secretary, your sister, and she was in advertising. She was at J. Walter Thompson, I believe, for a period of yeah, time. Yeah, she was. Were you there too, or were you at another agency? I was there yeah, from 69 to 71. Brilliant. No, a lovely business. JWT, one of the yeah. big giants. You met my father in sales, because my father clearly married your sister. And I believe you were working at Sanderson, who made wonderful, or they still exist, making beautiful wallpapers, William Morris. I'm wondering what what you were doing there and, and what my father was doing there. I was I, I tried to get into advertising in 1968-69 and I was told that if I didn't have the university degree I needed practical selling experience. So I literally because I'd been to Sanderson's for a previous job just just working sort of part-time for a photographic studio. I thought Sanderson's got a wonderful atmosphere, wonderful showrooms. So I went in, literally asked if there were any jobs. The um, showroom manager came to see me and he said, you can start on Monday. <laughs> I was <laughs> earning nine pounds a week plus 1% commission. That was my salary. We're talking about 1968 now, quite a long time ago. And um, the 1% commission was very important because that made all the difference in whether you could take a, your girlfriend out to supper or dinner during the week or not. <laughs> wow. Was that selling business to consumer? You were selling rolls of wallpaper? In the big showroom, consumers came in from the street and we were selling them wallpaper. I was on the wallpaper side. There was a big fabric side and the floor above. But your father and I were selling wallpaper to punters who came in from the street. Not necessarily interior designers. They could just be people taking could be, it home. Could be, could be, yeah. 
could be that some people came in were interior designers and wanted to ask lots and lots of questions, which we, of course, could answer. What was the average order value? How much would someone spend in a transaction? Well, um, anything from the cheapest wallpaper is four and sixpence, which is about 22 and a half pence. And the most expensive is about nine or 10 pounds a roll. And um, if you could get a 40 or 50 pound order, that was good. But the big trick was to try and grab any Bangladeshis or Indians coming in to, to wallpaper their restaurant with gold and red flock wallpaper at 10 pounds a roll. Now, if you could wow. do that, you're talking about two or three hundred pounds worth of orders, which was two or three pounds um, in your pocket. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. OK, so the pound, you could you could go out and have a good evening on a quid, could you? You could. Um... Uh, we had a, we had a you could have a curry and yep. a special brew for one pound. Brilliant. So you would be able to go out so that. The stuff that was put into the Bangladeshi restaurants was was long lasting. It's high quality. Yeah, high, very high quality. Flock golden, golden red flock wallpaper. Very expensive. Very very good. Top quality, and it made the restaurant look wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And having talked about that bit of business to consumer, I, would it be fair to say you spent most of your life, even though some of your products have got to consumers, that you've spent most of your life in a business to business sales type capacity? Yes, I mean, subsequent to uh, the wallpaper, I was in advertising, and then I joined my father's business, and we were selling to distributors, retailers, not to the public. Yeah, and then eventually the public gets your product, but your, your daily business is encouraging other people to take it on. Correct. We'll definitely get to that. So were, were any early sales lessons sinking in at Sanderson, or do you think this sort of sales career didn't kick in till advertising days or well no I, th I think I think you can't be a shrinking violet if you want to be a salesperson yeah. um, I think you've got to be quite positive you've got to be enthusiastic I mean all of which you are too Jeremy <laughs> <laughs> and, um, well it's it's I all think, in the genes isn't it I think the Christie genes the Christie genes are, are, are quite good and my grandfather was a brilliant salesman your great grand yeah and my grandfather was a great salesman my father was so it's all it's all coming down and I'd like to think my three boys are well we're all in sales in a way I mean we're all selling something whether we're yep. selling a service selling products large ones small ones correct when you when somebody has to make the transition, because a lot of our work is trying to make help people make the transition from being a salesperson, suddenly you're given a team, you become a team leader, and often you've done the same job as the people you're leading. Yep. So I'm wondering if you can remember the first team that you became a leader of, and you had to make that transition, and what you learnt in that kind of step up. Well, I wasn't really a team leader till I joined my father's company, because. Okay. I was part, part of a team in advertising, and I certainly wasn't a team leader. I had a secretary, which is very nice, and I was dependent upon creative people, media people, and nothing. But I wasn't the team leader. My team leader was the manager or director. And the most important thing, if you become a team leader, is obviously to have great integrity and for your salespeople underneath you to trust you completely. Yeah. Trust you. So... So if you make a boob, you want the support of your team leader. Yeah, you do. You really do. And that's the most important thing. I mean, you've got to be, uh, customers have also got to trust you. They've got to respect you. They've got to admire you for your integrity. And that is everything. No, I mean, there's the old joke is integrity is 
is everything. If you can't fake that anymore, you're you're out of it. Um, <laughs> so, you then, as you say, you join Alexander Engineering that your father has started, and you come up to running that company. And that's quite challenging, not only as a family business to take over from what your father's done, but I'm wondering what the challenges are of becoming an MD of a business, having had the background you'd had in advertising, you then come into a automotor, you know, motor factors type business. I mean, the biggest problem most employers have are probably twofold staff, the right yeah. people to do the right job. And then if you're involved in products, choosing the right new products. Yeah, because you had a lot of lines. I don't know well, how many lines you had. Using lines all the time, which was wonderful. I loved it. I loved it. But the most important thing really is the staff. I mean, if you haven't got the right staff for the right job, then you, you, you don't get anywhere. And you, were, you weren't in a city. You were in a large village. You were trying to recruit locally as much as possible. That's, yes. You had loyalty. I do remember because I worked work with you in the holidays that you, you operated the poet system. And so we could all clear off at, at lunchtime on a Friday. That's right. Um, was that probably a very neat staff retention? Yes. I mean, we decided that, that we'd reduce lunch hour by half an hour, which means you'd got two and a half hours extra per week. So we then stopped at one o'clock on a Friday. It was very, very beneficial. Right. Everybody loved it. In fact, you could probably, not that we did this, we could probably almost pay people less on a sort of four and a half day week like that. But it wasn't really a four and a half day week. We only allowed people to have half an hour for lunch. But people were sitting at their benches all by just eating a sandwich. So you can do that in half an hour, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that lockdowns changed is people got out of the house more because they, right. in a sense, couldn't and we were getting stir crazy. I think taking a break is important potentially leaving your desk but no lovely i guess you had people who could clear off for the weekend absolutely. and not, not have to turn up till monday morning very good so yeah. people women could do their shopping or the man could men could do the mow the lawn or whatever so by friday evening everything was done for the weekend it was great yeah lovely shut shut up shop yeah talking of lines because i remember my father telling me at sanderson that there were again so many lines so many styles of wallpaper oh. and a new md came in and he made a quite a brave decision to cut lots of lines of Sanderson that just didn't sell or they'd sell one of a year. How did you make some of those decisions? And I know you were selling to people like Halfords and... Well, I think you, if, there's a, if there's a rotten apple, if, if there's a bad one, you've got to actually sell it off quickly because there's no point in clogging up the warehouse. You've got to get rid of your bad lines and move on to the next one. I mean, you hope there won't be any, but there all inevitably are some bad lines. Yeah. What was one of your biggest hits that you think if we if we hadn't had this product, it would have been a duller business? What was some of the big hits of products that you think people listening now would think, gosh, why were people so excited about that? Well, I remember there was a German company selling a particularly special soft, spongy steering wheel cover. And we got the UK rights for that. Um, and that was fantastic. I signed a letter saying I would sell 10,000 in the first year, 20,000 in the second year, and 30,000 in the third year. Well, we'd sold 70,000 within six months. Wow, in the UK. And, uh, wow. Wow. It was amazing. And that was very successful. High margin, really good. And that was great. And then we, another great thing which we did, did is go into car air freshness in the in the early 90s. And that was fantastic. We sold millions and millions of them. It was brilliant. 
That was that where you did a licensing deal with Hanna Barbera cartoon yeah, characters, licensing yeah. with uh, Looney Tunes and with Sonic the yeah. Hedgehog, and with people like that. It was kind of quite hard work getting getting the licenses, but once you got it, you're off. And the licenses, you pay them a flat percentage on everyone to have the character. I think we pay them five percent. Right, and they do nothing for that. They just get a check. Well, they had the, they had the they had the rights, didn't they? they yeah, the sure, sure. Yeah. And petrol cans was that quite good for a time? Yeah, we I mean, were making petrol cans. That was very good, and we made I mean millions of them, millions, quite literally. And we we became brand leaders in Scandinavia. Can you imagine? Yeah. Wow. And we sold huge quantities to Holland as well, and to France, and of course in in UK. And now, I suppose. Do you think because cars are made in such a more modern way with less of our own tinkering in them, that business eventually got smaller? Well, there's much, much less business on car parts and um, people to do DIY. Because as you probably know, there's so many electronics in cars now that you can't really do it unless you have all the machinery to plug it in. So that side is gone. There's still business, good business on car accessories, I suppose, roof racks, bike racks, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And then we'd probably air freshness. Yeah. My daughter who's just passed, I know your granddaughter too, they, they seem to, when they want to buy these smelly things to hang in the car, <laughs> yeah. um, probably picking up other smelly youth. <laughs> Do you think being a leader of a business is better than being a salesperson or the very fact that you're still in sales now, would you say you prefer being a salesperson and not a leader? Well, if or a you're manager? a salesperson and have respect for your sales leader. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. As long as you know the leader is going to support you and give you opportunities and make your life tolerable. I mean, nothing is worse than working for somebody who you don't respect. So if you're a salesperson and have a good team leader, that's great. If you're a team leader and have good people under you, that's good too. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a balancing act. It's your own yeah. destiny. I mean, I remember when I was in Yellow Pages and got my car I just managed myself and I, I had a little bit of support and intervention. And as you said, I had the backup. But most of the time, it was your own destiny and you were driving. it. I'm wondering if you think now of sweeping changes. So it was really interesting to hear about communication and this endless letters, because I think for people to imagine a typing pool, that's quite a, a strange thing that you might only see in a, in a dramatization on television now to sort of yeah. take you back. But I'm wondering what are some of the sweeping changes that perhaps for the better. So you're sitting there now and you're going, well, I've seen these changes and I think they're better, but also maybe some that you don't think are serving business, if you have any Well, the, the, the wonderful benefit of things like Google. I mean, when I had a job at Honda, I was made, I was, I was in charge of the, I was in charge, I was called market research executive and I had to research new products for them. And I was told to research generators for Honda. I'm talking about now 19... Uh, 68, 69. And there was no such thing as Google. So what I did mostly was to go, go and find trade magazines, look at all the advertisements. And then the secret was really to ring up the editor and say, I'd like your advice. Now, editors, that was a great thing to do because they love people asking their advice. Now, an editor of a trade magazine knows a lot about the trade, the manufacturers, everything that's happening. So that was a great source of information. They would give that freely and, and, and like, freely. like to they help you. Yeah. I took them out to lunch, which was good, and they loved like that. And it was, it was very, very interesting. And they, that all the information about competitors and about the trade and about the, what was happening in the trade and progress and things, that, 
that they came tumbling out. It was brilliant. Mm. Mm. Well, now you've got Google, so you can you can do your research sitting at your, your your desk, can't you? You can. I'm wondering if what you've just said for people listening is actually not a, something that could be re-engaged with because every industry still has trade magazines that they're much thinner. They carry less advertising. Yes. But still, those editors are dedicated to the industry, aren't they? And they may have things to say. Uh, well, I think there'd be, uh, there'd be nothing wrong with trying to get to know or speak to editors of trade magazines or even consumer magazines in that particular sector. And they normally are very, very helpful. They'll never tell you to, to, to jump off the, off the end of the pier. They're just very, very helpful. Mm, that's great. What about a change that you don't think has really helped business to motor? Or is it mostly... Um, I think the buyers... Uh, have become more unreasonable. I mean, did you see in the paper that I think, um, I can't remember which retailer, some, it could have been even Morrison's, or no, it was a fashion company, have asked all their suppliers for a 20% discount. Now, that is just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Buyers becoming more unreasonable, tougher. There's probably very wide choice from manufacturers, so they sometimes, unless you're a brand leader, they don't really mind if they do drop you. Yeah. That, that's tough. I mean, you and I have talked without mentioning names that some retailers really are close to horrendous in some of their buying behaviours. Well, unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, you and I have shared stories of dinners I've been to and suppliers have paid for everything and being mistreated and all that sort of thing. I have friends now who sell products to supermarkets and they seem to change buyer within six months. So they thought that they've got a relationship where they're supplying. Yeah, but, but that can often happen. Yeah. And I'll tell you a funny story. It's a true story, and it doesn't mind matter to mention the company, but I used to sell to Woolworths, who now no longer exist. Oh, yeah. And there was a lovely buyer who I'd got on very well, be doing a lot of business with him. Then he retired, so a new buyer came in. So I had a new range of products, which I went to see this man. Perfectly good guy, but he was a new one. And uh, after quite a long meeting, he agreed the terms for that product. Let's just say I was selling to him for five pounds, net price having given him a discount, right? Yep. So he said, well, that's great, Tim. Um, okay, so I'll be placing the first order soon. I said, thank you very much. He said, oh, by the way, um, I've got to tell you there are a few extra terms which you're going to ask from me. I said, what do you mean terms? He said, well, I'll tell you. We'll take 2.5% discount for quick payment in 60 days. I mean, 60 days quick payment. 1.5% discount for merchandising your product and and one percent discount for uh, being a new product so on top of what i'd have really agreed there's four and a half percent on top we'd be taking off off, off and the that's line. take it or leave it or we no won't stop. negotiation what to, and i said well this isn't what i exactly what we what been discussed he said i know that's those are our new terms boom, boom that was it and doing it right at the end at the end after i agreed on the t after agreed the prices yeah can you believe it it sounds like Maxwell, doesn't it? I don't know, but I mean, I, I, I had to get on with it. And then eventually, oh, then actually they, they went bust, didn't they? they well, they well, ceased speaking. Karma. It, it was appalling, appalling. I mean, maybe these things, as you say, integrity, eventually karma will come around and get you if you've got poor, could be, yeah, could be. poor behaviours of how you treat people, and then, then, that, then it will get yeah. you. So you've mentioned integrity as being vital that... It, it's funny, we're, we're writing a book at the moment called Disloyal Bonding. And the concept of disloyal bonding is where salespeople bond with customers by slagging off their own employer. 
you know, it's not me. They choose these rates. I wish I could give you a discount. No, no, that, that's appalling. That's no yeah. good. It's very, it, and actually it's quite common, especially with very large employers. You know, oh, I've got a rubbish system. I know how you feel. They don't do this. I'm wondering what other values are essential to a long and prosperous career, particularly in selling. I'm wondering what, what sort of other things you would say. If you look at, I mean, the, that man, John Allen, has now had to leave Tesco because he said something inappropriate to women. I mean, obviously, you've got to behave yourself, haven't you? Yeah. And you've got to be respected. You, you, you don't want a black mark against you from anybody, do you? So honestly, I repeat it, Jeremy, integrity and honesty and being straightforward, that's all, all you must ask for. Yeah, maybe we, it isn't so complex. It's funny, quite a bit of, you're, you're talking about the Woolworth buyer. We're going through experiences now where we're dealing with procurement and we don't know any of these people and it all comes in a bit late. and Quite tricky. It is. And, and what ultimately you want is a partnership that lasts. But I suppose world events, interest rates soaring, people get a bit itchy, get a bit worried and that, that affects some of their behaviour. This is Bob and Jeremy's Conflab. Bob and Jeremy are sales and management trainers and also executive coaches. If you're looking for some one-to-one coaching assistance, please make contact through our website, realitytraining.com. So let's come to maybe Tim's guide of some of the things that you really should get clued up on. What should you really know about? You know, if you've got this nice position to be reflective now where you're looking back on your career, I'm wondering what are the sort of top tips and lessons that you might share? Well, um, there are four things, four headings I would suggest. Knowing your product or service, knowing your competitors' products or services, pricing in the sector in which you're operating, and handling difficult or unreasonable buyers. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, knowing your product. I mean, you've got to know everything, everything about your product or service. The USPs, you know, unique selling propositions, that what you're doing on promotion, have you got any advertising going on or promotional activity, display stands, merchandising. Remember, Jeremy, that marketing moves consumers to the product and merchandising moves the product to the consumers. Mm. Merchandising and display stands, shelf shelf talkers and things like that. Because you've got to be fully prepared to be asked this sort of question for a buyer. Give me three reasons, Tim. No, give me five reasons, Tim, why I should be buying your product. And you must never, ever rubbish the competitor. You've got to be factual. You've got to be honest. And you just actually have to answer those questions truthfully. Because that's the sort of question which, which they could ask. Are you with me? Yeah, I am. I'm just thinking, I'm, you just said five. I'm thinking five reasons would be incredibly tough, whereas you'd hope that you'd have one absolute golden USP that would be enough, but maybe not. Well, for instance, a supermarket would love to hear your advertising on television, wouldn't, wouldn't it? That, that yeah. would be a reason for buying your product, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the um, consumer's agenda up, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, your packaging may be very high standard and better than anybody else's. You can't say it's better than product A, B, or C, but you can say, look at our packaging. It really is a high standard. It meets all the, ticks all the boxes. So, so think little things like that. Yeah. So moving on to 
knowing your competitors, once again, you see, you you might might be asked by a buyer. Now, you know, um, Tim, that I'm buying products A, B, and C from you know who they are. I said, yes, of course. So tell me, how do you compare with those ones? Now, once again, you've got to be truthful. You mustn't rubbish the competitors, but you've got to be prepared for that. Hmm. Are you with me? Yeah, I am. Are you saying, do you almost have to say they're particularly good at this? Well, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, of course, product A has got this and something, but I'd like to say that we've got... We've got this. Yeah. Why I'm said. I mean, you've got to know all your competitors' strengths and weaknesses. You've got to know their USBs. You've got to know their promotional activities. You've got to know their distribution channels. You've got to know their price structures. You've got to know their discount structures and everything. Yeah. Because if you don't know about your competitors, how are you able to answer those questions from a potential buyer? Yeah, good. In a sense, you might have done as much or even more of the work than they have. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, lovely. And the pricing thing is so important. You've got to know all about the pricing in the sector which you're operating. I know that's an obvious thing to say, but it's amazing how many people go into businesses that don't fully understand the discount structures and pricing structures in that particular sector. Yeah, and knowing at what point the next discount can kick in. You were talking about your deal with the German uh, manufacturer of the steering wheel cover. Yes. Uh, or, or that you were the UK um, distributor of that. Yeah. Steeped in your conditions of 10,000 sold year one, 20,000 year two, 30. Would there have been a higher leverage for you as you reach those points, I suppose? No, I, I think he gave me a set price, but I must say he kept for, you know, all the, all the time. So that was very good. And we were actually then manufacturing. We were buying the product. We were manufacturing it in, at, uh, in Haddenham. Yeah. yeah. But, um, once again, with pricing, I mean, some people tell you about a, a turnover rebate after you've after you've agreed the price so that's pretty sneaky too gosh um, i mean i remember doing that for you when i worked in the purchase ledger room and i'd find payments going to retailers of contributions in rebates and yeah you know, I, right. I remember coming to see you going is this right and you you're explaining it to me yeah contributions and all these sort of things yeah absolutely can ruin your margins i often think that one thing salespeople don't get in their heads is if I'm selling you a product for 30 pounds and someone else is selling it for 25 my job is to sell the difference of the five why is ours worth the five pounds difference not the 30 I spend quite a lot of time doing that with salespeople where they say that these people are less than us and I say well how much less and they might say 10 percent or five pounds right and I say well so well, let's work very hard on why you're worth five pounds not Absolutely. 30 you don't have to worry about the full figure yeah very good that kind of fries their mind a bit. That's very good. I remember when the Dyson Airblade came onto the market, the hand-drying device. Yeah, very expensive. That, well, they were £800, whereas the standard world dryer was 100 Right. And so you're bringing an £800 product into a £100 marketplace. Yes. And I remember the story I heard, which I think you'd find quite amusing, is when James Dyson launched it at a hotel, he invited all of the, um, uh, you know, the companies like PHS, Dalkia, um, those companies that put mats into washrooms and sure, sure, they were all invited in. And I think at the break time, some some of the directors came up and said, "My guys are good, but they're just not this good. We won't be able to sell them." <laughs> um, you know, there's no we, we we can't do this. But then I think one company stayed behind and worked out exactly why it was worth the eight times more because it was eight eight to one. But your electricity cost saving was enormous. 
Oh, really? Well, if it takes 10 seconds to dry your hands and the other one took 45 seconds. Sure, sure. And you had one in a contact centre, you'd have people back on the phones yes. much quicker and you'd sell more drinks at the hotel bar, right. wedding reception venue. There was a lot of maths involved. Yes. Was that your final area on the price or did you have another section? Dealing with difficult, unreasonable buyers. Yes. Often an unreasonable or difficult buyer will want to just give you a lecture about life. You've just got to sit there. You've got to be a good listener. Yes. Bite your tongue and um, don't, don't upset him or annoy him. Just, it's a true saying that people like doing business with people they like. Yeah. So even if he or she is unlikable, make yourself likable because he may change his spots. Yeah, true. And don't forget too that that difficult buyer may move on to become a buying director or purchasing manager of your best client. So you don't want to fall out with them, do you? Hmm. No, exactly not. That happened to me. A, a very tough buyer of a wholesaler would need a cash and carry moved on, become the buyer at Asda, oh, who we were selling to. So that was quite a shock. But I never fell out with him. But I must say he was a tough, tough guy. Yeah. Certain characters, aren't they? Certain, certain type. I was talking to this lovely builder who helped us do some work. And he came around the other day as he's going to help us do something else. And he was saying... He he looked he looked worn out. I said, "Are you okay, Anthony?" He said, "Well, I've I've taken rather a lot of flack today." Mm. And he said, "I it's taken me this long to work out. Really, I just let my customers moan at me. They get it all out of their system. Sometimes I want to say to them, "Well, look, f you. We're we're clearing the site. We're leaving." But I know I won't get paid, so right. I have to just let these customers Absolutely. offload their their fury yep. at him. And it could be yep. something so slight that the brickwork they thought was running at a different course or that's right. One tradesman left his cigarette on the pavement outside or, you know, <laughs> they can be small things, but to the customers, huge things. The balancing act of marriage, children, all of that sort of stuff. I know that you've made time always to, and you're still pretty good at blocking in time when you go off and see friends and you might, you, you've kept very active. I think I'm almost giving away some of the things, but I, I, from my perspective, you've been quite good at doing some physical things like, attacking the garden and walking and hitting <laughs> golf balls what is what would you say to people as some of the balancing act secrets well i think the most talking about children and i'm sure i was a bit guilty of, of not being a great dad and spending time the most valuable thing you can give to your children is your time yeah that is absolutely no doubt about it and when i was building up the business at alexander i probably was working very long hours and maybe i wasn't spending the time i should have done with my children i hope i've made up for that since but that is definitely a fact of life. You've got to mm. spend time with your children. Yeah. If you can. No, indeed. No, I'm, I've been lucky with having my own thing that I've been able to do all the school runs and that sort of thing, more than my wife, who's a teacher, who had to be in school earlier. Um, Absolutely. No. She has all these long holidays with them, so that's been good. Any kind of final words that you would say on what you think people might need to watch out for or stay true to or any other hot tips? I think um, if you're a salesperson, I mean, I'm, I work for this for the this big engineering company and I, I'm always positive. The Italians like the fact that I'm positive and enthusiastic and there's nothing wrong with being enthusiastic, is there? No, I love the word enthusiasm and, and Zig Ziglar used to say the last letters of that easm stand for I am sold myself. <laughs> he has a, I'm sold myself. No, enthusiasm goes a long way. You, you're transferring a feeling to people. 
lots of people are negative. And I think all during lockdown, I'd go on Zooms and see some miserable postage stamp faces. Your attitude very much is your altitude. I do yeah, believe that. Very much so. PMA, Jeremy, positive mental attitude. PMA. Yep, you're in the PMA club, aren't you? <laughs> well, look, thank you so much, Tim. That's been lovely. Lots of lovely insights. And who knows, it, next year it might be retirement kicking in at 81, but if all these deals kick in, you might, you might carry on. I might. I might. <laughs> <laughs> have to play it by ear. Well, look, thank you very much. Okay, Jeremy. I hope it's been helpful. It's been glorious. Bob and Jeremy's Conflab. The Reality Podcast.